Welcome back to the Sustaining Sport podcast. For any of you watching Premier League football a few months ago, you may have noticed a couple of pitch invaders running onto four Premier League games and attaching themselves to the goal. Those were not your standard football disruptors. Those were representatives of a campaign called Just Stop Oil, a social movement and campaigning organization looking to reduce our society's dependency on fossil fuels. And as soon as they ran onto the football pitch, it became an issue of sustainability at sport. Therefore, I'm so pleased to be able to say I have one of their representatives coming on this podcast today, Nathan McGovern. He's going to run us through what Just Stop Oil are doing and why they're doing it and why he himself joined in the first place. I really hope you find today's episode as interesting as I did. Welcome, Nathan, to the Sustaining Sport podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. You're very welcome. So let's start at the beginning. Um, what are the origins of Just Stop Oil? Um, so yeah, the origins of Just Stop Oil um, are, you know, really seeing the state of the world and the fact that governments, including the British government, just really don't care about us, right? And taking a step back and looking at, you know, all right, when governments don't care about the people they're meant to represent, how does change happen? How do we actually get positive change? And that is, you know, civil disobedience and campaigns of civil resistance. So Just Stop Oil is, you know, reviving that uh, amazing legacy of, you know, non-violent civil disobedience um, in order to, like, affect change. I mean, and that's that's in, in the context of the climate emergency, which we really don't have an awful lot of time to deal with. Yes, yes, I think that, that that point you make about time is quite an important one that, you know, we can't sort of leave this 30 years and come back to it. It has to sort of be, well, <laughs> probably has to be about 20 years ago, but um, rather today than, than than tomorrow. How do you guys sort of compare yourself to maybe some of the other organizations doing similar things? I'm thinking of um, obviously Extinction Rebellion. I'm thinking of uh, Insulate Britain. Why why not just join one of those organizations? Why make it on your on your own, so to speak? Um, yeah, no, that's a really, really good question. Um, and as opposed to that, I'd say, um, you know, a lot a lot of these movements, a lot of these organizations actually, you know, see themselves within this um, whole ecology of, of different movements, different organizations, different campaigns that, you know, we are kind of all in the kind of same area, but there is, is a strength in having our differences and different ways of going about things. So, for example, there might be um, those that are more front-facing like Green New Deal Rising where they're actually you know trying to engage directly with politicians and make them uh, more receptive to you know the ideas um, that uh, groups like um, coalitions like Just Stop Oil might be doing by direct action and civil disobedience so um, I guess there's, there's a big strength in our, in our differences even if you know we are working in the same kind of area. Yeah and it's funny how um, that point you make even resonates with me about the way I do my podcast, because there's a lot of other sort of sustainability sports podcasts, but I do think my interpretation of it is one of the broader ones. Therefore, I come out with, you know, very different um, speakers and different themes, but I don't sort of see the other ones as competitors, but rather we're all, we're all kind of going in the same direction, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how did you personally get involved in this? Were you a founder? Did you jump in quite early? Um, yeah. So um, I knew a few people who were kind of, you know, buzzing around with the ideas, the the big thinking a little while ago and then yeah had a few chats to them you know about what the campaign might look like who's going to be involved especially for me it was very important you know this was a youth-led movement which it really is and you know that, that's really kind of come through from the way um 
we have been um, looked at uh, in a lot of the media and, you know, the pictures coming out, you know, everyone is, you know, late teens, early 20s, really, that are driving this movement forward. And, you know, with that has come like a lot more consciousness of like, you know, the climate crisis isn't just necessarily a future thing. It's a here and now thing. About 5 million people are dying every single year um, due to extreme temperatures directly linked to the climate crisis. And I feel the people around me, young people are especially conscious of that. And it, it's a community that they are wanted to be part of ever since I kind of, you know, was given the lowdown on what Just Off Oil was going to be. Yes. Um, and yeah, that's an interesting point you raise about the, the youth side of it. And I, I find this a little bit of, you know, when I'm talking about certain topics that I raise on this podcast, if the listener who's engaging with me is younger than me, this is an average statement. It's not across the board. And obviously I have a quite a small sample size, but you know, if they're younger than me, they tend to sort of ask what I would call phase two questions of like, oh, I see that's an issue you've raised. What do we do about it? Whereas some of the um, older listeners will question the underlying, and that can be quite frustrating. I obviously understand that you know it is about raising awareness and and sort of sounding the alarm and giving that education, but it can be a bit frustrating when people are like, but like, is climate change a big deal? And you're like, okay, so we have to start, we have to start on page one of this book. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So obviously, uh, <laughs> I had become aware of you guys probably just before. But it wouldn't have been able to have you on my podcast because it has to be somehow sports related. But then you guys decided to go to some football games and um, yeah, display some pretty epic civil disobedience at football games. <laughs> Where did the idea for that come about and why specifically football and why specifically those games? Um, yeah. So, yeah, again, this was this was another youth driven um, idea. I suppose some might call it uh, more radical, but or we saw it, you know, as a massive platform right it's a massive stage millions of people tune into to premier league games every single week so you know it, in terms of being able to get the message out there being able to generate the conversation um it's a second to none reach because of the media focus that's already there and then i suppose for my my angle like personally i'm, I'm a mass fan um commentary city fan all my life i see the power of football in you know the context of social justice movements, you know, bringing different people together and the fact that it's so important to communities. And, you know, we have reports suggesting that about a quarter of football stadiums in the UK could be underwater within 20 or 30 years. And that's a massive number. And, you know, seeing that and realising, you know, uh, one day, you know, I'm probably not going to have the opportunity to, like, take my kid on that first walk up the steps into a football game. Like, that, that feeling is, like, indescribable and i'm probably not going to get that opportunity if nothing happens right now yes and i i think you as a coventry fan are showing a particular degree of selflessness because coventry is about as far from the sea as you can be in the uk <laughs> yeah yeah you're still worried about your stadium being underwater i respect that particularly and yes for those for those all those coastal teams who don't seem to take this seriously yeah from a from a financial perspective this is a recipe for disaster because that risk is there what were the uh, what were the consequences to your to you and your colleagues the ones who did go on the pitch and obviously got probably quite you know roughly escorted off have they been banned have they been arrested what actually happened there yeah so uh, all of us that did did these actions at um so the first one was at an Arsenal Liverpool game the second one was at uh, Everton Newcastle the third was at Wolverhampton Wanderers Leeds and then the last one was at Tottenham Hotspur versus West Ham all of us you know were arrested um taken to police stations and you know charged under it was uh, uh, one of these sections of the Football Act, which is you know about encroaching into the field of play without um, lawful excuse, um, and yeah, the, the consequences of that can be quite severe. Um, it, it's uh, you know for 
all of us being young people, it's quite a, a hefty fine. And, you know, if we are convicted, we all face football banning orders of a minimum of three years, which um, for me especially, you know, it's a very bitter pill to swallow because that's, you know, a minimum of three years, not being able to go and do like one of my favourite social activities. But, you know, if uh, if we kind of don't do stuff like this, you know, I'm not even, I'm not going to be able to go and see football in a few short years time anyway. So it's just balancing that, I guess. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Which game did you specifically go to? Uh, the Tottenham Hotspur West Ham game. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was actually watching the, because I'm a Liverpool fan. So I was watching mm-hmm. the Liverpool Arsenal game at the time. And obviously the cameras, you know, you normally they expect some kind of streaker. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the cameras immediately switch off and this kind of thing. And I, I was watching and I even said to the, my friends who I was watching with at the time, like, oh, you know, this is just a thing they do for streakers. Like, I'm sure it's nothing, no big deal. Lo and behold, I look on my phone about an hour later and I'm like, oh, no, these were not just any ordinary streakers. These were people with a yeah a powerful message and and putting it in front of the right audience, I think. Uh, and it definitely raised questions around, for example, shall we say oil money within football? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 been a bit of a torrid time in terms of firstly Abramovich and then, then Manchester City's ownership and now Newcastle. Like, there could not be more oil money in football at this point, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that, that's, you know, again, something that the, the game has to reckon with, you know, where where is the, the money that it's taking coming from? I mean, for the most part, the, the book is being passed along to the fans who are facing extortionate ticket prices. And it's, yeah, for a lot of, lot of these owners, it's just a, a vanity contest. And I mean, obviously, especially, you know, for, for the likes of Chelsea and Manchester City, it's brought their fans a lot of success. But um yeah, at what cost, really, you know, when we're talking about the wider world. Yes. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've sort of been, shall we say, throwing shade at a lot of my uh, friends, particularly my um, recently my friends who support Newcastle. But I have to I've had to look inwards of late with um, Liverpool's main sponsor being Standard Chartered. Mm-hmm. And they have, you know, just a significant, like very significant uh, fossil fuel assets all around the world. And one thing that annoyed me was just the actual amount of money. Like I, I, I was recently engaging with some Liverpool fans who are starting a, a social movement specifically to rid Liverpool of Standard Chartered as a sponsor. And the numbers just don't add up for me. You know, they get this amazing brand awareness as in being attached to the club. And I think we get 40 million a year from them to be on the front of our jerseys. But then that's like point, I can't remember the exact percentage, but that's like 0.1 of a percent of the money they put into oil as, or fossil fuel assets every year. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Well, <laughs> is it worth, are we even getting a good deal here? <laughs> um, yeah, first and foremost, don't touch fossil fuels. But secondly, this is a bad deal. So let's, let's find definitely alternative means. Yeah. yeah, and I th- it also rages the whole issue of sports washing, right? Why these mm-hmm. football clubs have such good brands, and these um, these fossil fuel companies would love nothing better than to hide behind the the brand value of these clubs. But then, thanks to people like you, we're drawing direct comparisons around. No, football fans don't need these these institutions. Yeah, definitely. And you know, I mean, in this country, all you really need to do is you know look at the model that Forest Green are, are forging. You know, with, with Dale Vince um, at, at the kind of helm, it's uh, amazing what he has done at that football club in terms of sustainability. Um, but not also the fact that you know they've gone from being, let, let's be honest, not not a great football team to you know they're they're about to win uh, their division this season with with not only sustainable environmental model but sustainable social and financial models as well i mean it's definitely possible yes and uh, funny you mentioned that i was literally at a forest green game <laughs> uh, i was invited up there this monday um to 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 check it out and it yeah it was great like uh i always kind of worried that it would be i don't know i don't know how to say this there would be some kind of like not footballing institution anymore <laughs> that it would kind of be like you know very sort of yeah 
off the wall and like maybe shall we say hyper sustainable yeah but no yeah. it was just it was just a football team that has has looked at their supply chain and said right we can improve xyz um and as you say they've also built a great team within that and they're probably getting a lot of fans just because of the way they're doing things yeah absolutely and their kits are amazing as well so even if you don't care about the club the kits are fantastic they are fantastic and yeah someone even said to me oh you wouldn't expect a sports team to be able to play in green. And I was like, well, I am South African and the South African national team <laughs> in green. So fine. Uh, but other than that, yeah, the, just on that final question about the football, was it scary going to do what you guys did? I mean, it must have been pretty terrifying sitting there for the first few minutes, just sitting in the stands and waiting, biding your time. Yes, yeah, so it, was, it was a balance because like we, you, you know, we kind of knew around what time in the game we were going to go. Um, I could sit back and enjoy the first half, which you know, it, was like, it was a great half of football, by the way. And, you know, it's the first time I've been to, to Tottenham Hotspur's new ground. And, you know, it's, it's like stepping into a spaceship. So in that regard, I really enjoyed it. You know, when it, time ticked around to, to when, when we were going to go. Um, yeah, it, it was absolutely terrifying because obviously having been uh, a football fan all my life, I know how football fans can be quite a lot of the time when there's disruption or something going on they don't like so yeah it was my, my uh, heart was beating out of my chest uh, when it was happening you know when we were getting dragged off you know you tried to kind of um, put it out of your mind but you can still hear all the abuse getting hurled at you so yeah in that regard it, it's pretty scary um terrifying as you say yes and i've even had this um i confess to have gone to a couple of newcastle games and sat with my mates who are newcastle fans and me being a liverpool fan watching the other team sort of obviously not <laughs> loudly cheering for the other team but uh, there was a, a woman a couple of seats down from me who was doing the same thing but was cheering for liverpool and yeah once the newcastle fans realized there was nothing shall we say you know, there's no physical violence, anything like that, but just the, the noise and sort of feeling that many eyes on you and being grumpy with you, it is quite terrifying. Yeah. And do you think the fans in the stadium in real time realized what you, your objectives were or do they think you were just troublemakers? <laughs> um, I think, you know, given, given you know, the, the precedent of the, the previous few games being disrupted, um, they did. Mm, good point. And, you know, it's kind of one of those where in the moment, I guess, um, it can be really easy to get swept up in something that maybe later you think, oh, shit they had a point and I, I, like it's uh, interesting actually some of the people um, who've been on the pitch you know have had messages afterwards from people who they've never met in their life before who were at the game who, yeah. who have actually messaged them and said like oh I'm, I'm sorry for for what happened how the fans reacted and how even how they reacted and you know looking back they they were saying you know they actually looked at you know what just up oil is the state of the climate emergency and, and actually have like reached out and tried to apologize to people that have been involved in in these actions yes and yeah i what i one of my favorite things about it um I, and i suppose it was unique to me as a big sport fan was that it was different i do think particularly us who are already um shall we say aware and, and and trying to act to help with the climate crisis when you see these sort of extinction rebellion marches or, or instagram posts you get a bit desensitized to a point like there's only so many marches you can go to and then when there's no change you do feel a bit desensitized, whereas going to something like those football games was, for me, I felt quite reinvigorated because I was like, oh, here's a different way of raising awareness. Because, you know, marching through the streets of central London is a good thing to do, but not that many people will see it, so to speak. But to get yourself on a television screen of however many people around the world um, through sport, that, that different angle is a really good strategy, I think. Yeah, it's, it really is amazing. And, you know, it's kind of... Um triggered so much else all across the world uh, involving sports. Uh, recently. Uh, the group Direct Action Everywhere have disrupted uh, NBA basketball games in America because the owner of one of the teams um, 
has, you know, been involved in a lot of uh, animal rights abuses in his factory farms. And then, you know, in Belgium recently at the Belgian Cup final, it was another climate-related one. In Germany, the last generation have done a climate-related one. In Australia, at a rugby game, a climate-related one where a fan ran onto the pitch with a flare happened. So it's just amazing to see uh, it, it perhaps catalyzing this, this kind of action across the world and it just captivating so many people. Yes. And yeah, I think it just sits so poorly with me as a, as a sports fan when you see this kind of um, yeah untoward behavior going around behind the scenes in terms of ownership, because it is not necessary for the sport to function to have that. You know, I, I understand that money helps and this kind of thing, but there's money coming from elsewhere. So I have no idea why sports fans, uh, sorry, sports institutions often tend to reach for these um, types of deals. And I suppose the obvious answer is that because uh, it's the most money. And my my number one example for that is UEFA being sponsored by Gazprom. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of morality, Gazprom's probably the worst company they could have picked. <laughs> you know, the Russian state-owned oil and gas conglomerate. So my point is they didn't go in the middle of the moral index and sort of say, okay, we'll weigh up a little bit of monetary value versus morality. We're just like, no, we're going to go as far down the, the morality um, wormhole as possible to get the most money. And that just, that's it's poorly with me. And of course, then as soon as Russia declare war, um, UEFA dropped them and said, oh my God, we're so sorry. I'm like, oh, you didn't, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you didn't know they were, they were a Russian state-owned entity, did you? Yeah, it just kind of brings you know, back to the greater questions. I mean, that you know, we've been trying to push for years about, you know, is football really still the working man's game? Which, you know, I think sadly the answer to that question is for the most part, it's it's not. All sustainability and all kind of ideas of justice have, have gone out the window for a lot of the, the owners and, you know, people on the payrolls of these organizations and clubs. Yes, yes. I think to just underline your point, I literally just saw before we got on this call, they've announced the uh, ticket allocation for the Champions League final um, and for the two teams that are going, I think they each get 20,000 seats, 20,000 tickets for their fans. The stadium seats uh, 75,000. So I'm like, the two, the two sets of fans will, will make up just, just over half the stadium. I'm like, what on earth are you saying? They should, <laughs> they should make up 98, 99% of the stadium. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So highly frustrating. And I agree, it's not becoming the working person sport uh, anymore. And it requires some more, dare I say, civil action to get it back. Talking of civil action, you guys have been looking into, shall we say, disrupting the oil supply chain here in the UK. How have you gone about doing that and how, what's that experience been like? Um, so yeah, it's been um, people putting their bodies on the line specifically at you know, places like oil terminals, um, uh, where uh, lorry parks are, that sort of thing, by you know, different tactics like sitting in the road to, to simply just prevent these trucks going um, and refusing to move until arrested or by climbing on top of trucks. Um, so then the trucks obviously can't move and that blocks the road in that way. Or by um, things that I've been involved in um, as well is by actually going into the sites, the oil terminals and, you know, occupying areas of them, uh, the fuel loading docks to be precise to, to ensure that they can't be used. They can't um, be used to fill up tankers. Yeah, so kind of that's what we we've been doing, and it's yeah something we don't really want to do. But I guess you'll know probably better than me about how civil disobedience has to be disruptive in order in order to work. I guess. Yes, yes, um, and you know, I can see a lot of both sides of the argument. I think um, Insulate Britain, uh, one of the other organisations uh, who are doing similar things, they are getting probably the most heat because they're going on sort of. They're taking on um, normal roads, if I can say that, like disrupting people commuting to work and stuff. And I do see the argument of, you know, you're stopping people getting to work, you're disrupting people's livelihoods. It's it's a tough call. 
But at the same time, I think I think a lot of us who are so worried about climate change and are seeing the evidence pile up and have read all of the research get a little bit of cognitive dissonance around what we can do. So I almost just admire what you guys are doing from a perspective of you doing something. Maybe it's not the perfect, perfect way to raise awareness or you know, maybe it will only disrupt the oil supp- supply chain for five seconds, but that doesn't matter. It, it, it can be almost therapy for you guys while it's also, <laughs> you know, getting, you're raising the awareness and getting through to, to people like me. And um, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, you know, kind of ultimately it's about building this uh, community of people, you know, who are conscious of the situation that we're in and, you know, conscious that for the most part, our government is going to do nothing about it. They, they're going to, you know, watch as this thing unfolds properly big time in the UK, like it already has in places like Madagascar, Indonesia and Brazil. And, you know, it's, yeah, building that community of people that are not only resisting the, the corrupt and, you know, now I can say criminal given recent events, but we're actually actively, you know, seeking to build a better world uh, beyond that. I mean, that raises a good question. What would be your ideal scenario? You know, if you were to be sitting with Boris Johnson today and he would say, right, I'll do the top three things you say, what what, what exactly are you guys asking for? Um, so yeah, the just the just stop oil demand is that simply just no new fossil fuel investments, right? It's It's not about turning the tap off, so to speak. It's about not building any new ones. And yeah, we're not, we're not stupid. We know, we know we need a transition period away from fossil fuels and into, you know, just renewables, not just, you know, renewables that are using child labor from parts of the planet we don't see. Yeah. So just, you know, him actually understanding that it's, it's not just a radical demand. It's a mainstream position, right? It's a position the IPCC has called for. It's a position the International Energy Agency has called for. And, you know, only in, in the most recent IPCC uh, address, Antonio, Antonio Guterres has described dangerous radicals being the governments that are investing in fossil fuels, not the climate activists fighting against fossil fuels. Yeah, and I think you've perfectly phrased it there, where we we all acknowledge that we can't just sort of turn off all of the the coal and oil today because you know people would die in other ways, you know, hospitals would turn off that kind of thing. But yeah, that transition away drastically, no new investment. And yeah, I would even say just being upholded to the promises they've already made. You know, there was that stat that came out in in February where even if we completely followed every promise that was made by every leader at COP26, we would still only get like 2.5 degrees warming, which is still above what we really kind of want. Um, And then also we have not like even two months, three months after COP, we were not on track to meet those, those promises. So it is getting to that point where we need to take, say, more drastic words. I just think, what is what did Greta say about it? Um, something about, you know, ho- hopes and prayers don't don't make the difference. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, so she phrased that so well. Just talking more about these methods you're using, how would you rate the balance of effectiveness? Because it obviously will turn some people off. It'll sort of say, oh, these people are absolute, you know, leftist um, disruptors <laughs> and we, we shouldn't take them seriously. But do you think, are you getting any indication that it is getting through to some people? Um, yeah, so there's a recent uh, YouGov, YouGov poll that actually demonstrates quite an overwhelming majority of those polled, which uh, were representative um, of the, the British population, do agree with the demand. And, you know, uh, beyond that, there was uh, about a 6-7% increase in the, the amount of people who, who were polled who uh, viewed civil disobedience favourably. And that, that's that's a significant um, statistic given you know the, the fact that the just stop oil only really really kicked off with with those disruptive actions at the the beginning of this this month so yeah i think 
the fact that this disruption is then gaining media attention and the media are forced to you know, cover the fact that our government is doing nothing whilst, to use the don't lock up analogy, whilst a, an asteroid is streaking towards Earth, is striking a chord with a lot of people who you know, have been left behind by, by governments for the past 10 to 15 years, if, if not longer. Um, so it, it's slowly starting to gain that support and consciousness from, from a myriad of people. But, you know, we do have to acknowledge disruption is, is not going to get everyone on side. There are, there are people who are going to be turned off by it, which is, you know, difficult for us. Yes. And I, I, I just think, you know, we underestimate the power of government in that sense. I, I used to actually work for a, a renewable energy company up in, up in Birmingham, um, obviously not far from commentary. And, you know, their, their entire business model was based on a government subsidy, as in the business model was not yet profitable except for the subsidy that came through but the point was that the energy was being generated was renewable so we we mustn't underestimate the power of government in that sense and then particularly on the other end how dangerous it is if they are still using tax dollars to subsidize oil companies and you know drill for more places i mean that is it's not just not doing anything that is really making the problem worse yeah it really is and you know it's it's a it's about 236 million pounds comes out the, the the british taxpayers pocket every single week and lines the pockets you know of bp of shell and exxon and when you kind of you get your freedom of information requests and your your information leaks that show like these companies haven't paid tax in about five years it's um a bit of pill to swallow when our energy bills have just increased by about an average of 700 pounds. Um, and and the, yeah, the war in, in Ukraine has really highlighted how amazing it would be if we were much more independent on renewables, because then we wouldn't be so beholden to such price rises caused by if Russia decided to turn off their taps or if, if Saudi Arabia decided to turn off their taps. We're very, we're very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, only only about a fifth of the fossil fuels that are extracted um, in the UK, whether that be in in the North Sea or any any kind of mines in Lancashire, etc., only about a fifth of that is used in the UK, as opposed to the entirety of you know renewable energy generated in this country is used in this country. So, I, it's it's an it's a no brainer when when we talk about energy security. The only thing you mention in that sentence is renewable energy. Fossil fuels should not even be touching it. Mm, mm. And yeah, you mentioned that poll earlier. It, I get a bit, I struggle with this a bit in terms of politics. And I do think it's maybe my social circle is a lot of my people in my social circle think similar to me and a lot of them vote similar to me. So I'm like, okay, maybe this time this election will be different. And then the election result comes out and I'm like, what on earth is going on? Like, what, what's happening here? And yeah, there's this seems to be this disconnect of people who care about climate change and are worried about it. And voting for the people who can actually make a difference and sort of hold fossil fuel companies accountable um yeah yeah you're absolutely right and you know um, a lot of it i i would lay the blame blame squarely on um a lot of the media obviously not yourself but you know when when you look at um you follow the the money train essentially you know who owns the newspapers who owns the private media companies in this country what what are their vested interests right a lot of them you know, either have a vested interest in a conservative party or they have a vested financial interest in fossil fuels, right? And what is printed in, in these newspapers, what is going out on these radio and television shows is, is always going to reflect where the money money is coming from, sadly. And that's that's essentially, you know, why a few weeks ago I glued myself to a microphone during an interview just out of sheer desperation and frustration. You know, these platforms aren't being used for 
sounding the alarm genuinely and letting people know the situation we're in and that we have a government that doesn't care about us, right? That's just a, a level of frustration and, and desperation, you know. We're not only being lied to by a lot of our politicians, but a lot of the places we're meant to be getting our, our news from too. Yes, yes. And the, the, there's so much incendiary news out there. Um, uh, I'll, I'm, I'm happy to call out at least one institution without any fear of, of repercussions. But like the Sun newspaper, like it's not yeah. a newspaper. It is literally a sort of, it's like the Instagram algorithm of trying to show you, <laughs> you know, stuff you they think you want to see rather than stuff you, you know, it's important that you know. And so, yeah, I, I have no faith in that institution to supply honest information to voters. And it's important because, yeah, voters, that's, that's how we can in, enact change. I also am sympathetic to the voter in general. And I am thinking quite globally here because, you know, there are few institutions that actually, uh, political institutions that offer them that escape that they're looking for. I'm thinking of Australia is a good example where the, the two parties, the one in power and then the Labour Party are often referred to as shit and shit light. <laughs> as in, even if you went for the Labour Party, they still have entrenched oil interests, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, I don't think Labour has covered themselves in glory in the last 10 years. And that's so annoying because it's like, <laughs> this is a perfect time for them to sort of show the show the conservatives up and say, look, there's there's this lack of action on this particular issue, but they're not they're not sort of grabbing the bull by by the horns, so to speak. And the other example I would give is Germany, where you know they finally, finally, finally sort of got some momentum when it came to their Green Party, the first Green Party in Europe to make some ground. And then it came out that like the the leader of the Greens, she had plagiarized a novel she'd written or something like that. And I'm like, talk about shooting yourself in the foot. And then exactly the media take that. The media, if you, if you Google Green Party Germany, the first news article come up is that leader of G Green Party Germany caught for plagiarism. And I'm like, ah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's funny you kind of mentioned that's that political situation. I mean, you know, recently, the second two biggest political parties in this country, Labour and Liberal Democrats, have, you know, condemned the, sim the civil resistance we've been taking and called for injunctions. And, you know, not only is that, that a crime against, you know, their environmental policies, it, it's a crime against democracy. Because, you know, when we essentially look at, you know, what an injunction is, it's a private company subverting democracy, subverting the law, right? And it gets into, yeah, again, that whole wider issue of who has money and power, basically, which, again, it leads into a bit of a disillusion with the political system, save, save some notable characters. I mean, one that comes to mind straight away for me as, you know, a politician who I do genuinely believe in. Um, her name is Zara Sultana. She's my um, MP for Comptry South. Um, she's an incredible woman. The, the fight that she's you know, come through with facing Islamophobia from a lot of people a lot of veiled attacks even from within her own party, but she, she perseveres and, you know, represents, really represents the people who voted her, her into that position. So at the same time, um, I don't want to dismiss all politicians. I do want to be upholding, you know, ones that are staying true to, you know, the promises they were elected on and the people they represent. Yes. And I think we can also even look at just how the political system works and get quite frustrated at that. And the best example of that is definitely the United States, where even though the Democrats uh, are currently um, in power, they, they have such a, a small majority, you know, that luckily the, the vice president has the deciding vote on a lot of things, but they're so struggling to push anything through anything, shall we say, meaningful through Congress. And the midterms are coming up. They're not looking particularly good. They might lose uh, a lot of seats in the midterms. And then even though they're in power, they can't do anything. So um, the, the status quo just perpetuates. 
Yeah, but it's always encouraging to hear about slightly more local politicians making a difference and giving people hope because I do think we maybe get caught up in the the macro situation sometimes too much. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think a lot a lot of this just feeds back into why civil disobedience and civil resistance is really needed. You know, as I say, you know, when you look back at history, whether you look at the civil rights movement in America or if you look at Nelson Mandela's peaceful anti-apartheid movement, is you know, non-violence and civil disobedience is what has brought so much to just the average person throughout history. And, you know, if we're gonna go on what has worked in history to now, you know, that that is that is our biggest hope, right? Is ordinary people regardless of who they are, what walk of life they come from, coming together under, you know, these these common goals that politicians and those who supposedly have the power to make change aren't making. Yes. And you raise a wonderful point that history often looks quite favorably on those who were calling for the right thing to do before it was maybe collectively known as the right thing to do. So even if you don't succeed in the short term or definitely in, even in our lifetime and even if we are sort of condemned to some kind of degrees warming for every sustainable action we take it is making the situation slightly less worse if i can phrase it that i can't say better but i'll say less worse mm-hmm. and yeah like for your for your own peace of mind and i think that's what motivates me a little bit just keep speaking this kind of truth to power because the alternative is if we're going to be condemned to what's it three degrees warming either way rather we do it complaining about it the entire time than to just let it happen yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of, you know, to pick up on that, the, the really terrifying thing, right, is, you know, we look, we hear like one degree, two degrees, three degrees. And, you know, in our heads, that really doesn't seem like a lot. But those those average, those average figures taken from the entire globe, right? So the sea can absorb more heat than land can. So the temperature increase over, over water is going to be less than land. And what, you know, two degrees global warming looks like in the places where people actually live is like an average of seven degrees temperature rise. Mm. It essentially makes the entirety of Africa uninhabitable, right? That that is, I can't even imagine that amount of people, you know. So even if you know in the UK, we might only be, I say only, but thinking about thousands or hundreds of thousands who are displaced or put in danger by this. It's billions of people globally, right? Billions of the world's most vulnerable. And then exactly, then we'll have an, we'll have the another refugee crisis, and and people will be like, oh, why can't they live where they were coming from? And I'm like, well, I'll tell you why. Um, mm-hmm. I think you 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 phrase it so well. Two degrees warming is is terrible, but it's way better than five degrees warming. So let's sort this out. Yeah, and I think just to end, Nathan, I'd like to say you know thank you to you and your colleagues for doing what you're doing. I I think it must be very scary. Not just you're you're putting your safety on the line, but sacrificing your ability to go to football games just must be mm-hmm. heartbreaking. So yeah. Also to any of the listeners out there, please vote. My goodness, <laughs> I, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but like doesn't matter what your political view is, your stance, or anything. You have to have to have to vote. Thank you for your time, Nathan. And um, Yeah, thank you for having me on again. No, you're so welcome. And yeah, hopefully we'll maybe swing back to this topic in a year's time and see how you guys are doing. That was our interview with Nathan McGovern of Just Stop Oil. I know a lot of these campaigns have got some criticism in recent months about their methods, but I do think that their objectives are honorable and that if they get the conversation going and they do not resort to violent means, then it's perhaps something worth doing. Talking of next steps, this podcast now has a Patreon. 
For those who don't know, Patreon is a website where you can donate money to your favorite creators just to make it easier for them to keep doing what they're doing. Of course, I will never ask you to pay directly for this podcast. I think it's important to keep this kind of information free and available to everyone, but it is done entirely at my own expense right now. So if you do like the content and you feel like it's something you want to keep hearing more of, I would appreciate any form of donation, however big or small. You can find the link to my Patreon in the show notes. And of course, thank you so much in advance. And also, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it and I will see you in the next one.